835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Let's get started. Three big things. We start the program off this way every day, and I will give you a little note. It's going to take us a little while to get through the three big things today because they are all big things. One, um, well, you know, one city of Milwaukee, one... It affects all of us if you live in the Milwaukee area. And then, of course, the, the story that has all the hand-wringing going on, President Trump firing the FBI director, James Comey. All right, I have in my hands the New York Times political analyst analysis. In Trump's firing of James Comey, echoes of Watergate. The Chicago Tribune editorial board, let's see the headline, Trump's firing of Comey looks like a politically motivated hatchet job. It goes on and on and on. And that's we're not even getting to uh, the editorial, the opinion pages. Donald Trump's firing of James Comey. Um, we have to have an impartial investigation of this. Washington Post, the same thing. You, you get the idea. All right, everybody knows by now the president dismissed the FBI director, James Comey. Let me give you a little background as my blood pressure starts to go up on this story. The, when I went to work for the United States Department of Justice, one of the things that you learned in the very beginning, it was what in Star Trek they used to call it the prime directive. It, it, the prime directive, if you were going to be a federal prosecutor, is you do not comment on ongoing investigations. In many cases, it's illegal to do that because as as a prosecutor or an investigator, you're dealing with grand jury information, and that's covered by grand jury secrecy. But more importantly, the basic philosophy of our American justice system is that the government, the state, whatever, speaks through the charges that are formally issued. If somebody has committed a crime, the way you you handle that is you present the evidence to the to a judge to a grand jury whatever you issue the charges that is how the government the state speaks in charges that are issued you do not comment on ongoing investigations you do not give your opinion as to whether or not somebody is guilty or not guilty you present you accumulate the evidence you present it and then the responsible people make the decisions as to whether they're going to issue charges or not. That's that is the principal rule. The FBI, by the way, doesn't issue criminal charges. The FBI is an investigative agency. They work typically with and under the direction of prosecutors with the U.S. Attorney's Office or in some cases the Department of Justice. The FBI investigators um, again, we'll sit down with the assistant U.S. attorney or somebody in the Department of Justice, and they'll say, okay, this is the case. This is kind of what we're looking at. Where should we go? The FBI does not make decisions on criminal charges. That's done by the Department of Justice attorneys. The FBI conducts investigations, period. All right. So here you have James Comey, who is the FBI director, who, and I said this at the time, last fall, for reasons that pass understanding, decides to violate the prime directive of federal law enforcement and go and offer this lengthy analysis of why criminal charges aren't going to be issued against Hillary Clinton in connection with the, the email scandal and the Benghazi emails and all that type of stuff. Right? There was no reason for him to do that. On top of that, when he goes off and he, he 
you know, enters the, these theories. If you will recall at the time, there's all sorts of people who were prosecutors or former prosecutors who were saying, this guy's legal analysis makes no sense. You know, pro, you know Comey says, no responsible prosecutor would issue these charges. Um, so, you know, he, but he goes off and he does this analysis, even though it's not the FBI's role in the first place to decide whether criminal charges should be issued or not. Their job is to conduct an investigation. So he goes off, he does this lengthy analysis, um, essentially playing politics, clearing Hillary Clinton. The Democrats love him. Oh, this is great. This is great. This is great. I remember, and you can go back and check the tapes because I was doing the radio show at the time. I'm screaming that this has nothing. I could care less about the politics of it. You just do not do this if you were the FBI director. So then what happens? A few weeks later, they get new information. They turn up stuff um, on the on the uh, server on the website server of Huma Abedin, who was Hillary Clinton's top aide, married to that crazy Anthony Weiner. And then Comey, because he has already gone out on this limb and issued these various statements that he should have never issued in the first place, then what he has to do, then he has to go and say, okay, now we've got this new evidence, which maybe means that I have misled Congress when I was talking about this in the first place in letters I sent to Congress. So now I have to go back and try to cover my butt and retrace my steps. And now I'm going to say, okay, we, we reopened this investigation. Well, all the Democrats three or four weeks earlier who are praising Comey, oh, this is great. Now they turn on him. He's playing politics. He's trying to influence the election. And it does appear, I think, that Comey probably overstated the new evidence. But he did that because he put himself in a trick box because he violated what I think is the principal rule that prosecutors and FBI agents and FBI directors should have in the first place. He should have kept his damn mouth mouth shut in the first place. So now you have this ongoing mess where lots of people have lost confidence in him. And finally, I think I'm, what, what I think happened is President Trump, I think he had probably decided that Comey was going to be gone for a long time, but he waited a while and then, you know, made the decision yesterday to get rid of him. All right. Now you have all the Democrats who, again, were, were calling for Comey's head immediately before the election, and even as recently as about a week or two ago, they're calling for his head. Now, oh, my God, James Comey is the savior. This is just terrible that Donald Trump would come in. This is Nixonian. This is like the Saturday Night Massacre. It has nothing to do with the Saturday Night Massacre. First of all, there is no evidence to suggest that there's this investigation as to, you know, were the Russians complicit with the Trump campaign. There is not Eight months into this, there is no evidence at all to suggest that there's any there was any sort of collusion. That's number one. So I understand that this is on the Democratic wish list. Oh, we hope we're going to find something. Well, so far, there's no evidence. But number two, the investigation continues regardless of whether James Comey is the FBI director or not. The guy that is going to take over as the acting FBI director is a Democrat. His wife ran for political office as a Democrat. Um, if, If this was an effort to kill an investigation into political activities of the Trump campaign, um, it would be about as stupid a move as possible. What happened? I think the attorney general, the deputy attorney general, and I think the president all became convinced that because of all the political back and forth involving James Comey, he just was ineffective, and it was time to move on. 
414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand there's calls for special prosecutors, but this is the type of hand-wring. And, and, and look, may, maybe this segment would be more interesting if I came out and I started off by saying, Donald Trump is trying to suppress investigations. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. To the extent that there is any investigation, it will continue. This is not an effort to quell any sort of looking at the Trump campaign, even though, like I say, there doesn't appear to be any evidence of this. What this is, is simply a guy who I think had lost the trust of the president. And by the way, had at various points in time lost the trust of members of both sides of the aisle. So he's crying for crocodile tears for James Comey. Sorry, he made his bed. He is now lying in it. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, is this the Saturday Night Massacre? Is this Trump's firing of James Comey, echoes of Watergate? It looks like a politically motivated hatchet job. It only, in my opinion, looks like a politically motivated hatchet job. If you want it to look like a politically motivated hatchet job, there is the spin, and then there is reality. I want to talk about reality. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 844 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 848 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Dan writes on our text line, Comey reminded me of a basketball ref who makes a bad call, then makes an unending series of makeup calls to try to level the playing field. I'll never forget his bizarre Hillary speech where he built the case to charge her, then said, never mind. Uh, Sam on the text line writes, in the words of Krauthammer, this is a scandal in search of a crime. I, I mean, I'm just watching the, this hand-wringing, and it's been interesting because late last night I was looking at some of these clips from when Comey, um, after he clears Hillary Clinton, then says she's still under investigation. And I'm watching the outrage from the Democrats. He's got to go. This is terrible. Obama should get rid of him. <sighs> okay, now... Donald Trump, and that was actually the party line up until a week ago. Donald Trump now dumps him. Now it's, oh my gosh, this is a scandal. This is Nixonian. It is Watergate all over again. Nuts to that. Dick and Grafton. Dick, you're first. Good morning. Dick? Jeff, I, I agree 100% with your assessment. Uh, I, I think Comey had to go. I'm not an attorney. I'm just a regular guy. But I, I started scratching my head as to why is the why is the director of the FBI talking about stuff that I would think should be confidential? Yep. <laughs> and then we look at the way it's handled. Comey's out in California giving a speech to FBI recruits. He's, he has to get flown back in a Gulfstream jet knowing that he lost his job. He finds out about it on TV. But what really, really frustrates me is that Reince Priebus is the chief of staff in the Oval Office. Reince should have said, wait, okay, you guys, stop. As soon as Comey gets back, he's coming to the White House, and we're going to fire him. Yeah. We can't do it when he's in California. I mean, Jeff, if you and I were running the White House, we would have handled it better. Yeah, I mean, right. You're, so you're talking about more about the optics of, of the way he was let go as opposed to getting rid of him. Well, I think they should have gotten rid of him. I, I agree. When, when I, uh, last night I heard uh, 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 Levine read the letters from the Attorney General and the right. Assistant Attorney General, and they laid that thing all out, and it's like, yeah, yeah he's got to go. He has no more respect in the FBI. He can't lead the organization anymore, so it is time for him to go. But... It's and the way I'm it was handled. To, yeah, no, I get... No, thank, I mean, no, I, I think... I mean, yeah, I, I, I understand. You shouldn't... 
if you are going to I if you are going to lose your job, I, I agree that you shouldn't find out from a reporter covering you. I, I do I agree with that. So there's there's the question of you know how do you handle this um but at the same time i guess from the larger perspective this idea oh we need a special prosecutor no i mean at least so far look they've been investigating for months and months and and i've been real critical of donald trump when it comes to stuff and if they find out that there's collusion between people in the trump campaign and, and russia to try to influence the election that is a very very big deal so far there is absolutely no evidence of that. So, you know, you continue searching and continue searching. But this idea that we need a special prosecutor or this idea that Comey was out in an effort to try to stifle the investigation, are, are people nuts? I mean, really, I, I understand that, you know, you, you have these like knee jerk reactions. And I understand that, you know, the Democrats, for example, and some Republicans have to say what they think is going to help them at the time. But these are the same Democrats who a week ago were calling for Comey to be gone after Hillary Clinton makes her I'm back tour and denounces him. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Joe in Milwaukee. Joe, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah. What do you think? I think I think I couldn't be happier with it. And I agree with your assessment. But I think that uh, this is a great move by Trump. It's like draining the swamp, and it's going to have repercussions to everybody looking at Trump that we finally have a leader, someone who will step up and do the, the adult thing that needed to be done and has to be done. It's Joe, is, world, but, here, but here's the question. Is that the way this is going to be perceived? Because the way it is being spun right now is that – James yeah, Comey was a that. dogged investigator who was getting close to breaking open the whole Trump-Russian collusion thing, and this was Trump's way of killing the investigation. I mean, that's the way this is yeah, getting spun. I think you're you're not giving people credit. Okay, you know you're you're smart enough to see through it. I think <laughs> Americans are smart enough to see through it. The left is just hanging by a thread right now. Well, on, it, on yeah, I'm, yeah. Th- thanks. For, well, <laughs> see, that was very kind. That was a nice thing for Joe to say. If you're smart enough to get it, Jeff, everybody should. That's, that's not the way he presented it. But, um, but, but I just there, it's apples and it's oranges. I mean, I really believe what happened is that that the FBI director, who at the end of the day serves at the pleasure of the president, lost the confidence of the attorney general, and, and these were all self-inflicted wounds. I mean, again, he started it during the campaign by going on and giving this bizarre speech, clearing Hillary Clinton, that he then had to walk back a few weeks later when new information came in and admittedly might have walked it back too far. But then, again, it's this series of one thing after another that for a lot of people caused – I mean, Comey was a punchline. He was a punchline and a punching bag for both Republicans and Democrats. I think what happened is that Trump – some people were saying, well, why didn't he fire him on day one? Well, I think what happened is, because Trump was, at least in this case, a little bit aware of the optics. I think he said, okay, let's let this election thing settle down. And it's been several months now. It's been more than 100 days. There has been apparently no movement at all in this investigation because there's no there's no there there. And I understand that some people who hate Donald Trump don't like to hear that, but there's apparently no there there. So you have this all going on, and I think finally he just decided that Tony, Tony, uh, Comey is un, his position is untenable, especially since you know what he gave testimony what last week and then had to correct a number of those things. You know, it, it's all FBI directors should neither be seen nor be heard. 
They should be working, you know, in the background, and their work and the work of the men and women who work for them should come out in the indictments that are issued by the United States attorneys across the country. 414-799-1620. Tim in Fond du Lac. Tim, good morning. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Tim. Hey, you know, you say the Democrats kind of changed their tune, but what about Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions both praising him for what he did, and now they're changing their tune? Praising him right after the, after he, right, but first he cleared, see, they ripped him badly when, or at least Trump ripped him badly when he cleared Hillary, and then they praised him when he kind of walked that back a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think they praised that action. But does, does that mean, let me just ask you, does that mean that because he said, hey, I think he did the right thing in walking back some of his praise, that Trump then was committed to keeping him as the FBI, FBI director for a decade, for, for seven years? Well, well I, he, he praised him for, for standing up what, what he believed in, yeah. both him and Jeff Sessions, and, and then he now he yeah. fires him for doing the same thing. Well, I don't know that he's... Do you think he's firing him for standing up for what he believes in, or do you think he's firing him because he believes he's lost he's lost respect with both Democrats and Republicans and with the men and women who work for him? I... I don't know. Fair enough. Fair, I guess. I mean, see, look. I, I will tell you, Tim. I know that there are FBI agents, rank and file FBI agents, all over the country. Some of whom I know, who were looking at what he did with the the various public statements and just scratching their heads, saying, "If we did that, we would be fired." If if we if I decided, if I've got this investigation, and there's rumors that there's investigation of Wagner's producer Hondo going on, and I'm going to go on the Wagner show, and I'm going to comment on that investigation and opine why I don't believe that there should be charges coming from the U.S. attorney, I would be fired for doing that. That's not how things operate. Bottom line is, you can argue about the optics. Maybe you can question the timing. But this idea that this is Nixonian, give me a break. And again, the, the bigger, the biggest point here... Okay, the guy that's going to now take over is the acting director of the FBI, lifetime Democrat, wife ran for office as a Democrat. If the if you believe this was politically motivated, well, then Donald Trump is the stupidest politician to ever, ever descend on Washington. And that is saying something. Jeff Wagner, glad to have you with us. Big story number two. The solution to car theft in Brookfield, according to the police. Put your cars in the garage. Okay, now I have to back up on this. I know a lot of times on this program, I talk about the revolving door criminal justice system in Milwaukee County. And I know that a lot of you, you might be listening to me right now and you're in the suburbs, and you say, okay, there's Wagner, he's carrying on again, again. yes, yes, it is ridiculous what the judges do in Milwaukee County. Yes, it is ridiculous what the district attorney, John Chisholm, does in Milwaukee County. Yes, this joke of a juvenile justice system where you have, you know, these progressively educated teenagers who commit crime after crime after crime and steal cars and carry guns and we we don't send them off to jail yes we we know that that is ridiculous but that's milwaukee county and if people decide they want to live in milwaukee county well this is what you get why do we care if we live in cedarburg or we live in west bend or we live in brookfield why do we care that that is milwaukee county well all right Pay attention, because I come this way but once. The reason you should care 
about what goes on in Milwaukee County when it comes to crime is we do not have fences. This is not like the movie Escape from New York, where Milwaukee criminals stop at the border of Milwaukee County. Now, I am willing to be proven wrong in the conversation that we are about to have, but I am willing to bet that the majority of the perpetrators who are committing the crimes that we are going to talk about are not people who live in the suburbs. Rather, they are people who are committing crimes in Milwaukee County, who have been committing crimes in Milwaukee County, and now we're deciding, gee, it's easier picking in the suburbs, so let's spread our boundaries. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. So here is the story. Brookfield, Brookfield, in the last month, has had five cars stolen from driveways, from residential areas. Five in the last month. Five car thefts in Brookfield in a year would be a lot. But they've had five in the last month. And what what the police are saying is happening is... These are cars that are left in people's driveways, and they are left unlocked. And so what's happening is you have thieves that are making the rounds in these quiet neighborhoods, these suburban neighborhoods, between midnight and 5. They they don't want to make a lot of noise, so what they're doing is they're looking for unlocked cars that they can get into and then steal. And in some cases, they're actually finding, like, spare car keys or, like, the car fobs that are in the car making it easy. All right, so I I, I understand the advice that if you're leaving your car, you you probably, unfortunately, want to have it locked. Again, I could be completely wrong. These could be suburban teenagers who are doing it, but they're not. That's not what this is. This is, I believe, it's going to be criminals from Milwaukee who are coming out to the suburbs, uh, again, looking for easier pickings. So, okay, the, the police, you know, they're they're dealing with this and they are uh, appropriately discussing, you know, the, these things and advising people, hey, you know that there's um there are thieves that are out there. What, what what is their response though in addition to telling people, okay, lock the cars, but they're also essentially telling you to hide your car. Brookfield police, this is the way Channel 12 reported, have stepped up patrols. That's good. Sent out a warning to residents to put their cars inside their garages if at all possible. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. I'm sorry, but I think that is a completely and totally absurd response to a situation. If crime in an area is so out of control that people cannot leave, I, I, I appreciate telling you you want to lock the cars. That is an unfortunate thing, but I get it. You want to lock the car. But telling people that it has now gotten so dangerous that as far as thefts, that you got to put your car in the garage. You can't leave your car in a driveway for fear it might be stolen. To me, that is completely and totally unacceptable. And if you want, to the extent my theory is right, that this is criminals, these are criminals from Milwaukee that are coming out into the suburbs, it is, again, another lesson and another commentary on why we cannot 
continue to mollycoddle these different criminals. I think it is unacceptable to say to somebody, whether you're living in Cedarburg, and matter of fact, people in Cedarburg got a similar sort of warning, whether you're living in Cedarburg or Brookfield or West Bend or wherever, all right, don't leave your cars in the driveway. It's one thing to say, don't leave your cars running when it's cold. That's an, it is an unfortunate reality that there are so many thieves out there that now, yes, you leave your car running when it's cold, and within 30 40, or 45 seconds in, Milwaukee, in Tom Barrett's city of Milwaukee, the car will be gone. Okay, I understand that. But have we really gotten to a point where we now should be telling people that things are so unsafe that they have to put cars in garages if possible? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My response to that is, again, to law enforcement and to the courts. This community cannot be allowed to reach that point where... People can't leave cars in their driveway for fear that it's going to be stolen. And if it has come to that, well, then it's time to just kind of declare, uh, allow, allow the, to say that the bad guys would win. So what do you think about being told that you should essentially hide your car to prevent it from being stolen if you live in the suburbs? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. Hide your car. Seriously. It's 918, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Mary Jo writes, it's especially, it is especially strange given that Brookfield requires residents to keep garbage and recycling cans, wheelbarrows, boats, etc. in their garage. <laughs> yeah, so where, where are you going to put, where are you going to put the, the, the car? But here, see, here's the, Here's the bigger point of, of all this. There is nothing that kills a community more than a fear or a concern that the community is unsafe. And to me, the idea of telling I, – look, I, I understand we live in this world nowadays where you have to tell people you, you can't leave your car running even though it's 20 degrees below zero to warm up because there's so many thieves out there that the car will be gone. All right. So I, I understand that. I do think it makes common sense now to say if you leave your car outside that what you want to do is that you have to um, you, you have to, again, have it locked. I mean, I, I think that that typically makes sense. But, 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 to now say, also, because we have all these car thefts, you, you can't even leave your car locked out in the driveway. To me, at that, at that point, it becomes unacceptable. I understand. I don't mean to pick on the Brookfield police because they're, they're trying to encourage people to protect their property. But at some point in time, we have to recognize what the real problem is. The real problem isn't law-abiding citizens of Brookfield or Cedarburg or wherever who decide that they want to leave their vehicles in their own driveways. The problem is that you have this this blot of crime, which, again, I believe is spreading. And maybe I'll turn out to be completely wrong. Maybe this is a Brookfield-based car theft ring, but I seriously doubt it, that is spreading throughout southeastern Wisconsin and is jeopardizing the safety and the property rights of all sorts of people. And it is time to say enough is enough to that. And this is why it is a big deal, whether it's Milwaukee County or um, Waukesha County or whether you're talking about Dodge County or Washington County or Ozaki County. It is a big deal 
when you catch people who are engaging in this type of behavior, it is a big deal, and they need to be, yes, sent to prison. And if that means that we're sending more of this type of person or that type of prison person to prison, too bad, because this type of stuff, you know, cannot, just cannot be tolerated. I was looking at... Um, you know, the Fox 6 story on this, they quote some woman who lives in Brookfield. She says, I've been here for 20 years now. I moved here for the safe, secure areas. It's it's unsettling. She lives apparently a block away from where thieves took a vehicle from a, um, from a driveway. She said, it's a concern here because you don't see anything like that happening in our area. That big of a crime with cars, it just makes you uneasy coming and going at night. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. It, it does. Let's talk to Bob in Richfield. Bob, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Morning, Jeff. You know, it's, it's happening out here in Richfield now, too, and Germantown and the areas surrounding us where you can't leave your cars out anymore, and, and the burglaries are going on now. And uh, I moved out of Milwaukee 15 years ago to get away from this stuff. Right. And now I'm thinking, darn, I didn't move far enough away because it's coming out here. And they're, they're getting chases with these guys because they, they catch them sometimes, and they're heading right back to sure. Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. My guess, Bob, is, is like north. I say, may, maybe there, maybe there's a car theft ring operating out of Brookfield or Richfield or Cedarbrook, but I don't think so. It, it's, no, it's it, right. It's it, it's it's car thieves. It is criminals who have been, you know, plying their trade for years with impunity in Milwaukee or Milwaukee County, and now they're going out to the suburbs because they figure it's going to be easier picking. Yeah, and the one thing I like about living out here, though, is if they get caught. They're not going to be treated like they're treated right. in Milwaukee with the judicial system. Right, they're right. really not. Right, and they're going to be chased. It's not like yep. I mean, what, what's the what was the number that they had? That the city of Milwaukee they had like seven, the first couple months of the year they had like twelve hundred people who just fled from the cops and they let them go because that's their policy. Sure. And mm-hmm. you know, and you know darn well that those people they let go are out two nights later riding through your neighborhood or Brookfield or whatever looking for more yeah, cars to steal. Now they're coming out to the suburbs, and it's just you know Milwaukee's getting out of hand. And now it's moving west, it's moving north, Yep. and, and people are just done with it. Well, right, and, and I guess and it is frustrating. I mean, I don't mean to pick on the cops, but it, I, it, is, it is frustrating when the police say, okay, lock your car in the driveway, I get that, but then put hide your car. I mean, that, that's the response to car theft in the suburbs, hide your car? Give me a break. That's, that's why we moved out here, so we don't have, have to, to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. You know, so you can live in peace and you can live in harmony. And you can't do it out here now either. Yeah, no, thanks for the call. And again, it's, it's, I, am I faulting the advice? Yes, I guess it does make it easier to steal if you, you know, lock everything up. But I mean, it's one thing to say, don't leave your car running on a cold day in the driveway and unlocked because, you know, there's going to be people rolling around looking for that. But at the same time, I mean, really, don't leave your car, you know, ov- overnight? I mean, really, in your own driveway? Let's talk to Sue and Slinger. Sue, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. I just, what's next? Like, are they going to tell us, stop buying nice cars? <laughs> yeah. Don't buy a nice car. Right. Because it may be stolen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't buy those Audis. You know. Don't buy that Mercedes because it's going to be a target of opportunity. Right. Yeah. We we want to encourage you. You know. Buy buy those junkers because maybe they're not as likely to be stolen or whatever. It's just catch it, the bad guys. It's that simple. Right. <laughs> no. Right. Like. Put it on them, not on not on the citizens of Brookfield. Put put it on the. The bad guy. Right, yeah, exactly. That that's it. Now again, thank, I mean look, I, I mean I appreciate there there's some just stuff there there's some 
there's some sort of common sense things that you tell people. All right. I mean, okay, if you tell, okay, ladies, you know, if you carry a purse, don't leave the purse unattended on a park bench while, you know, you, you walk into a store. Okay, well, that, that that's just a common sort of sense thing. And I do understand don't leave your car unlocked because the way some thieves get into people's houses is they leave the car unlocked, you've got your garage door opener, they hit the, they hit the button, and um, then it it goes through. But but this idea that here, you know, you've got to hide your cars because, you know, we can't control the, the crime. You know, I, I'm getting a couple notes. People are saying, what should the police tell the, uh, tell the populace? Here's what they should tell them. We are aware that we are experiencing an increase in automobile thefts in certain areas. It is unacceptable. We are going to double, we are going to triple police patrols. We are going to catch the people. We are going to chase them. If you see anything suspicious, call us day or night, and we will be on it because we care about the quality of life, and we are out to catch the people that are responsible for this. And then... It wouldn't help to have a conversation with like whoever the DA is in Waukesha or Washington or whatever, who the county who then or Ozaki County who then comes out and says, unlike perhaps other jurisdictions, we consider this a big deal, and we're sending a message that anybody who gets caught trying to steal cars in our particular jurisdictions, they will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. In other words, if you think you can get away with it in Milwaukee County, don't try coming out to Brookfield or Cedar or West Bend or Slinger or wherever and think you're going to be able to get away with it. That's what I would like to hear. It's 928, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. After an offensive explosion last night in Game 1, Brewers Bats will go back to work again this evening against the Boston Red Sox. Bob Eucher and Jeff Levering will begin our coverage from Miller Park. That is at 635. It is sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. In less than five minutes... Uh, thanks to Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett, Chief Ed Flynn, and the power of the mob, city taxpayers are getting ready to shell out $2.3 million to the family of Dontre Hamilton. We will discuss that. First, though, just wanted to, to make a note. Um, if, if you watch a lot of TV or you're a sports fan, you're familiar with ESPN. If you're familiar with ESPN, you are familiar with uh, Chris Berman, who I believe was recently part of their, their layoffs. But, I mean, Chris Berman was the face of ESPN for for decades and um, just just a horrible story his his wife uh, her name is Kathy 69 years old uh, died in an automobile accident yesterday um, she was the way the reports are she was in a Mercedes uh, driving Mercedes was struck from behind by a Ford Escape driven by an 89-year-old man in Woodbury, Connecticut, around 2.16 in the afternoon, according to the Connecticut police. So she's driving. She's rear-ended. The collision sends her car down an embankment where it overturns in a small body of water. Uh, let's see. Uh, the driver also died as a result of his injuries. But just you know, this horrible story. Like I said, I think... I think Berman was included in this. They had been scaling him back, and I think he was included in the last set of layoffs. And, man, I'm telling you, my heart goes out to their entire family. You're just sitting there thinking, okay, you you have your life kind of planned out. All right, you know, we've worked all this time. I'm getting ready to retire. We can now, you know, we have this time ahead of us. We can travel. We can do whatever. And then you get one of these calls. You know, anytime you lose a a spouse or lose a child or something like that, it's got to be horrible. But 
I have to. I can only imagine, you know, getting getting this phone call out of the clear blue. You know, it's two thirty in the afternoon. You know, your wife's going shopping or whatever, and you get that call. So, um, thoughts and prayers go out to uh, Chris Berman. This is just just a horrible, horrible story. And the lesson is, um, enjoy every day because life is short. It's nine thirty-five. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Manitowoc authorities are debating what to do with a resident's pit bull that attacked and killed a neighboring dog. Should it be put down, or would that be too extreme? You can join the debate with Scafidi and Bill Stett, 1235 this afternoon. No, I don't weigh into that because it's my producer, Hondo Knows. Every time we go down this route, I get emails and phone calls literally from all over the world as to why do you hate Fluffy, my little pit bull? Rawr. Fluffy would never hurt anybody. Fluffy's the most wonderful dog, and I can't believe that you just don't like pit bulls. Well, it's not that I don't like pit bulls. I mean, if my, I'm glad my neighbor does not have a pit bull. I just don't think these dogs can be trusted, and I appreciate that any dog can lash out. But most dogs, if they lash out and they snap and they bite, you're you know, okay. You're, you're in the emergency room. You got a couple stitches. Um, or a dog like mine, where you, you can't even break the skin, but a pit bull grabs on, you know, and you're, you're in the morgue. That, that's, that's it. But no, I'll leave that to Scafidi and Bill Stepp. Uh, the last two days, I was up, I was up in Door County, and I, I just had, I hadn't been in Door County in years and years, and just had a, an absolutely wonderful time. You know, we checked out the Door County, one of the breweries up in Door County, and a Door County winery, and played golf at Peninsula State Park. It was beautiful, and kind of walked along the water. It's just, it just, I hadn't been there in years and years, and just had a great time, and I want to go back. But one of the things that I, I always say is that when I go on vacation, I just, I try to, I try to divorce myself from current events. I try not to read newspapers and things like that because inevitably, even though I don't have to do a radio show, I come and I, I start thinking about them, and it just. It's like, okay, if I was doing the radio show today, how would I do the structure and what would I argue? And I find my blood pressure rising with things that kind of aggravate me. So I just – I try to completely just stay away from it. Okay, you know, do you want to watch, you know, the, the TV news? No. <laughs> I want to watch Sports Center, you know, or I want to watch what that, – that's just how I do it. Because it's stories like this that just drive me absolutely crazy. Now, let me back in my way into this. Hondo is producing the show today. This is a test on math, all right? What is – 10% of 10. All right, you're, you're college at 10% of 10. Hondo says with a question mark, one. Very good. 10% of 10 is one. What is 10% of 100? 10. He says that with a question mark. Like, you're asking me if it's a trick question. No, it's not a trick question. No, no, no. Because percentage wise, you know, the, the, the objectively, the bigger the number, you know, the, the bigger the starting number is, you know, like, for example, 10% of that number will result in a bigger number. Now, you would say, Jeff, that is self-evident. Why, why, why do we make a point of this? Well, it's because apparently if you write for newspapers, you know, not only do you, I guess, have the opportunity to, like, fence stolen items, like if people, like, steal intellectual property from, say, the Bradley Center and funnel it to you, you get to repurpose that and then use it for commercial purposes, and there's nothing you can do. But also, I guess there's also the whole idea of, of you know, basic math. So here is the story. Wisconsin GOP tax plan. Now, this is Dale Coyunga's plan to essentially try to um, move 
Wisconsin to a flat tax. I don't know if I think that's the best thing or not. I, I just I I got to really run the numbers and I got to really think about it. And the devil is in the details. So I I take no position on that one way or the other. But the screaming headline in a local newspaper written by the guys out in Madison who don't like Republicans and don't like Scott Walker. Wisconsin GOP tax plan would cut more than $1 billion for the wealthy. Most taxpayers would see some savings under an assembly GOP tax cut package, and upper income earners, those who currently pay the most income taxes, would eventually save $1 billion a year, a new analysis found. The report from the Legislative Fiscal Bureau found that um, essentially – most of it, one third of the tax cuts, over a billion, would go to taxpayers earning $300,000 or more a year. Oh my God, this is tax relief for the rich. All right, let us go back to Mathematics 101, which apparently maybe if you are a reporter, you don't have to take that class. The people who pay the most in taxes are always, if you have like an across-the-board tax cut, for example, we're going to reduce everybody's taxes by 10%. The people who pay the most are always going to have the largest dollar amount of a tax decrease. I mean, all right, the people paying making $300,000 or more a year are paying the vast majority of taxes in Wisconsin. So if you have, for example, an across-the-board tax cut, you reduce everybody's taxes. The people that are paying $70,000 a year are necessarily going to get a, a larger dollar amount reduction in their taxes than the people who are paying $10,000 a year. But it doesn't mean it's not fair. It just means that the people who are paying more get a larger net tax decrease because wait for it, they're paying a lot more, okay? If you have somebody that's only paying, for example, four, let's, let's say they're paying $2,000 in state, $5,000 in state taxes, okay, $5,000. The, the, most, the most tax relief you could give them would be $5,000 because that's all they're paying into the system. On the other hand, if you have somebody who's just paying $50,000, for example, yeah, I mean, you could give them, you know, a, a 10% cut, and that would, yeah, they would reduce their taxes by, you know, five grand. All right, but that's the people that pay the most are always going to be the ones that get the largest numerical decrease. But, of course, when you're trying to spread the doctrine of class warfare and when you are trying to, again, denounce the evil Republicans who are trying to figure out how to get some form of tax relief, it's always going to be, well, that the people, it's those wealthy people, it's the people that are earning the most, they're going to get the biggest tax decrease. Well, yes, yes, they are, because again, across the board, you give a ten percent, you give a ten percent tax reduction to somebody who pays a hundred thousand dollars. That is necessarily going to be a larger net number than a ten percent reduction to somebody who pays a thousand dollars. It is just basic math. It doesn't mean that it's unfair doesn't mean that there's any problem with it, but again, it plays into this entire notion of the class warfare that is out there. Wisconsin GOP tax plan would cut more than a billion for the wealthy. No, it would, re- it would pretty much reduce everybody's taxes, but yes, 
the people who make more and who pay more in taxes would get more of a reduction because, wait for it, 10% of 100 is greater than 10% of 1. Just saying. Coming up next. Dontre Hamilton, big thing number three. We discuss whether the city should be paying $2.3 million and how it got to this point. Nine forty six, Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. Milwaukee's not the only city with issues related to lead in the water. What other major southeastern Wisconsin community could be facing a big problem? Find out as John McCure shares new details. Three thirty four this afternoon. That is during Wisconsin's afternoon news. All right, let's review the bidding for Dontre Hamilton. Um, many people remember this. The incident happened. Um, gosh, going on well, a little more than three years ago, April thirtieth. 2014. Time really flies. Um, What happened is, this is Red Arrow Park, downtown Milwaukee, kind of in the shadow of City Hall. What happened is, workers at a nearby Starbucks called police multiple times to complain that there was a guy who was sleeping in, in the park. So they called multiple times. A pair of officers had twice checked on him and determined that he was doing nothing wrong except kind of sleeping slash loitering in the park. But they said he'd done nothing wrong. Christopher Manny, who was the beat officer in the area, was unaware that this situation had already been checked on. So he's operating in a complete vacuum. He retrieves a voicemail about Hamilton, doesn't know that other officers already checked at him, but he's the beat officer, and he goes to the park. He approaches Hamilton, who again is laying on the ground, and he asks him to stand. Hamilton refuses. Manny comes up behind him, places his hands under Hamilton's arms and chest in what was a, a pat-down to try to determine if um, if Dontre Hamilton had a weapon on him. Now, Ed Flynn sold this officer down the river and said, well, this was an out-of-policy pat-down. You talk to almost any Milwaukee police officer, and they will tell you that they would have and do the same thing. This became out of policy after there were riots that broke out, and Ed Flynn was trying to quell things, in my opinion. But Flynn describes it as an out-of-policy pat-down, which then, by the way, starts this down the road of what is going to cost the taxpayers $2.3 million. Um, as, as, as Manny is doing the, the pat-down, Hamilton becomes violent. Um, he grabs Manny's baton, gets his police. They're, they're struggling. They're in a fight. He grabs Manny's police, the police officer's baton. And at that point in time, um, Officer Manny shoots and kills Dontre Hamilton. All right. Um, that unfortunate situation, tragic sort of thing. You will remember the story that the mob then takes over. Riots, you know, breaking out, these demonstrations, justice for Dontre, etc. The marches, all this type of stuff. Um, Ed Flynn takes a look at this and says the pat-down was out of policy, but nothing he did beyond that was, was wrong. There, there's This is investigated by the district attorney's office. They determine there's no criminal wrongdoing here. The officer was defending himself, but because Ed Flynn declares this to be an out-of-policy pat-down, this then you know starts, essentially ends Officer Manny's career. Flynn, in my opinion, responding to public pressure, fires 
Christopher Manny. Like I say, I don't think there's any other Milwaukee police officer who would have been fired for doing the same thing, and cops do this on a regular basis, these pat-downs to protect themselves, to make sure when they're dealing with this unknown situation that there's not somebody who's got a, got a weapon or something like that. But anyhow, Flynn... In an effort to, this is Ed Flynn, the police chief, I think to kind of mollify the mob, decides, all right, I'm going to fire, I'm going to fire Officer Manny. So they fire him. They hang this guy out to dry. They end his career. Um, and Flynn says, well, the officer didn't follow his training about how to deal with emotionally disturbed people and engaged in an improper pat down. Well, he didn't know he was emotionally disturbed. He just knows he's got some guy who, who's like sleeping on the ground, doesn't know that this has been checked out before. But state and federal prosecutors did not cha- charge Manny criminally in the shooting death. Um, again, he was fired by the Fire and Police Committee, by Ed Flynn, and the Fire and Police Commission ends up rubber stamping that. All right, so what happens is the family members of Dontre Hamilton then file a federal civil rights lawsuit saying, oh, this is terrible, you know, we, we're entitled to compensation. And it appears that the city of Milwaukee, that would be the taxpayers, directly or indirectly, I don't know if there's insurance involved or not, but one way or the other, the taxpayers ultimately pay the freight for this, have decided to settle this case with the payment of million pending approval by the Common Council and the blessings of the mayor, but this wouldn't happen if the mayor hadn't already agreed to it. Um, $2.3 million going to the family of Dontre Hamilton. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. You have a mentally ill person who is sleeping in the park a police officer comes up and checks on him makes a routine pat down to determine whether he's carrying a weapon or not the guy becomes violent grabs the police officer's baton in a struggle and the police officer in the routine and regular and appropriate exercise of self-defense ends up shooting and killing the man who's attacking him with his baton 2.3 million dollars Really? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage uh, Talk and Text Line. I understand that there's political forces here. I understand that Tom Barrett and Ed Flynn want this whole thing to go away. But $2.3 million? Really? We discuss next. What do you think? 414-799-1620. It's 952. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. 955, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, you have a mentally ill person who's sleeping in a public park. Police officer confronts him. The guy gets violent, grabs the police officer's baton, struggles with the police officer. The police officer engages in a legitimate use of self-defense and shoots the man. It is an unfortunate, it is a tragic story. City of Milwaukee taxpayers, either directly or indirectly, getting ready to pay out $2.3 million. Wow. Pat in Franklin. Pat, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. I, my opinion is the council should not approve that settlement. It's a sad situation, but where was this family when that young man needed help? And also, I'm sick of all the publicity that that family is getting. So, no, they should not be awarded that large settlement. Well, well Pat, thanks. I mean, I, there is no question in my mind that... That the the publicity 
the the mob the mob mentality that developed around this case in my opinion informed a lot of the actions of the mayor and the police chief in hanging this particular cop out to dry and that's what kind of started this down the road when the police chief describes this as an out of policy pat down and then fires the officer um it makes it you, you essentially make it a lot easier for the lawyers to come in, and, and that, that's what the argument was in federal court. The argument was, hey, you know, the, the, it's the city itself that says this was an out-of-policy pat-down. Ed Flynn, in my opinion, in order to appease the mob, hung this cop out to dry. And that should be a lesson that everybody who works for the Milwaukee Police Department should realize. Ed Flynn will hang you out to dry if you do something that he thinks makes it politically difficult for him or for Tom Barrett. So, you know, we'll have to see how this thing all plays out. But at least, in my opinion, I think the Common Council needs to take a really long look. Now, it's already, it's a done deal. It's an already, it is a done deal. So it's going to end up happening I understand that you've got liability issues that are here. The city makes this decision that they're afraid that they're going to get hit with this big judgment. And so what you do is you make this decision that you're going to pay $2.3 million to make the entire case go away and you resolve it. I understand that there are small p political reasons why you want might want to do this. But, 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 but. I think if you go back and you look at all these events, this was a tragedy. You don't want to see this end up happening. It is unfortunate that this man lost his life. It is a very, very bad set of circumstances. But I think it sends a very bad message to the Milwaukee Police Department and the officers that this is what will end up happening. It's 959 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 10.08, Jeff Wagner, 620, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Yeah, the uh, I, we're trying to work something out. Maybe tomorrow I'll be, we'll be able to work out something to be joined by the attorney for the Dontre Hamilton family. I have some, some questions, and I'm sure we'd like to offer some answers. We'll, uh, we might be able to work that out. All right. Right now, you knew this was coming. Wisconsin has a law. That was put into place. The, the editorial boards around the country were absolutely screaming, uh, and in, in Milwaukee and in Madison, just absolutely upset. You had Democrats that were upset over this notion that people should have to prove who they are before they vote. Now, of course, you have to prove who you are before you can do almost anything in in this country. If you want to open a bank account, you have to prove who you are. If you want to cash a check, you have to prove who you are. If you want to rent a video, to the extent that people still rent videos, you have to prove who you are. And most of the times, you have to do that through photo identification. The argument that I have always made is if there is an underclass of people that are out there that don't have valid identification – what we should be doing as a caring and compassionate state, country, whatever, 
as we should be giving them, you know, some photo identification so they can, again, so they can buy a train ticket if they want to do that, so they can prove who they are, so they can qualify for public assistance. I mean, I don't I don't think that that is an unreasonable requirement. But, of course, you know, when we po- put in the, the voter ID law, there was all this screaming. There's going to be people who are going to be disenfranchised. This is going to be absolutely terrible. Well, oh, okay. The, the question was, okay, show me the unicorns. You know, figure out who it was that couldn't get, that wasn't allowed to vote because they they couldn't, without reasonable effort, get, get an ID. Now, I mean, I understand that if you didn't have a suitable ID, you might have to jump through a hoop to get one. But that's no different than having to register to vote in the first place. Now, to, in order to register to vote, you have to go in and you have to prove, you know, where you live. You know, you have to show a utility bill. You have to show something. So unless we are just going to have voting become an open border thing where anybody can go in and can claim to be who they are and can claim to live where they live, there's always going to be some requirement that you have to prove who you are and where you live. So yesterday... All right, you, you have this, again, heavy breathing you know, story that appears in the Madison paper. Voter ID. Many in Wisconsin turned away from polls in the 2016 election. Voter ID law proved inst- insurmountable for many in Wisconsin. All right. States, I'm going to read you the first few paragraphs of this. State Senator Mary Lozick was adamant. The bill Republicans were about to push through the Wisconsin State Senate requiring that voters... Prevent, present identification at the polls would do no harm. Not a single voter in this state will be disenfranchised by the ID law, Lazic promised. Five years later, in the first presidential election held under the new law, Gladys Harris proved her wrong. And then it goes on. There's this BS estimate that's out there. 300,000 eligible voters in the state lacked photo IDs heading into the election. That was an absurd number to begin with. But regardless, the, the paper then acknowledges it's unknown how many people didn't vote because they had didn't have proper identification as opposed to how many just chose not to vote. But it is not hard to find the Navy veteran whose out-of-state driver's license did not suffice. Um, she had lost her driver's license just before Election Day. Okay, then there's another woman who... Okay, um, Harris, 66, made her way to the polling place despite chronic lung disease and a torn ligament in her knee. She had lost her driver's license before Election Day. Aware of the new law, she brought her Social Security and Medicare cards um, as as well as a county-issued bus pass. Not good enough. She was turned away. Under Wisconsin law, voters must present a driver's license, a state ID, a passport, a military ID, naturalization papers, or a tribal ID to vote. Um, and this, this lady just didn't end up having one. And so she wasn't allowed to vote. Here's another one. When Sean Reynolds went to his polling place at a local ice skating rink on Election Day, he showed his valid driver's license. The problem, it wasn't issued in Wisconsin. Reynolds, 30, was taken aback. He moved to Madison in 2015 to find work after leaving the Navy and receiving his associate degree from a university in Illinois. After successfully registering to vote in Wisconsin using a website, he thought all he needed was to show a current photo ID. After all, his Illinois driver's license was good enough to purchase cold medicine. Coming home and being denied the right to vote because I didn't have a specific driver's license is frustrating. Okay, he had an out-of-state driver's license. 
414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I admit this is another one of these stories that makes me just want to scream. There will always be a handful of outliers who don't get the message, don't get the memo, or for whatever reasons, no, don't take the steps they need to get whatever it is they need to vote. Is this really, though, people being disenfranchised? I mean, okay, let's seriously, let's, let's take this example. Woman loses her driver's license, all right? All right, go to the DMV and get a replacement driver's license. It takes all of what, you know, however, once you get to the DMV, I don't know what the line is going to be, but it takes all of a couple minutes to get the replacement driver's license once you get called to the window. Guy moves here from Illinois a year or more before the election, he's got an Illinois driver's license, and he's whining that an out-of-state driver's license isn't good enough for voting. To me, this is not people being disenfranchised. And you're always going to find a handful of these type of stories. This is people who, well, it's not that they're disenfranchised. It is that they are unwilling to do what you know, basic minimum things you need to do to be able to participate in society. And by the way, you know, under the law, if you show up at the polling place and you don't have adequate identification, you can still vote. You cast a provisional ballot, and then you have the opportunity to come back within however much time they allow you and prove that you can. So if you show up because you forget your ID, or because you don't have the appropriate ID, or because you have this lady who lost her driver's license, and rather than getting the driver's license replaced, she just shows up without appropriate identification. Well, okay, you can still vote. Then you can come back within whatever the time limit is and prove that you are who you are. But, I mean, this, this story in the Madison paper the other day, um, you know, it goes on and on for 15, 16, 17 pages talking about how terrible this rule is because, you know, we found a handful of unicorns that were out there who showed up without proper identification, who chose not to cast provisional ballots and not to go back and prove who they are. At some point in time, I don't think it is unreasonable, again, for a state to have some sort of control over its voting system. Now, can you argue that, all right, voter ID isn't going to significantly eliminate voter fraud? All right, that's a whole different story. But the fundamental question is, is it unreasonable to expect people to show, prove who they are? I think the answer is fundamentally no, an occasional unicorn aside. Mary in Milwaukee. Mary, you're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yes, if you, uh, some people want a lot of credits from the government on their income taxes, low income. In order to have a prepare or do your taxes in the office, you need a Social Security card and a picture ID. Right. A lot of people do furnish this then. Yeah, I, I mean, right. Well, and you know, you know what it is that, that you need. Uh, you, you need. You need either a state driver's license or a passport or or, you know, a government-issued ID or a handful of other different types of things. But people people know those type of things, and most people have something like that because, again, I think to collect public benefits when you apply for it, don't you need to have – you need to have a photo ID and prove who you are, right? 
Yes, and people people leave the office and they get it and they come back and within a couple hours or the next day, no 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 arguing about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's it. Now, I, I have no doubt. Like I say, that there might have been, and I wonder how hard the Associated Press had to look to find the, these unicorns. You know, that the folk, okay, folks, okay, here you have this guy. He's a Navy veteran. He's thirty years old. He's been living in Wisconsin for a couple years. He he hasn't changed the registration in his car. He's still operating under. A you know an Illinois driver's license. Oh, okay. You know he's shocked that that he hasn't been able to vote. Okay, well, all right. Get get, get current ID, pal. You know, and then this isn't going to be a problem. Or if you show up, cast the provisional ballot, and then you know go get the current ID, and then come back and show it. I mean, seriously, Mary in Oak Creek. Mary, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Hi, Mary. I have more of a funny story. Okay. I went to vote. And I have stage four cancer, and I lost 50 pounds. And so they looked at my driver's license, and it took three of them to decide if it was me or not. So they actually really did look. But I did wow. get to vote. But they, they, it, for a minute there, I thought I might not be able to. See, that's so, – oh, first of all, I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm very sorry what, what you're going through. Um, Second, that that is interesting because the big the, the complaint I hear mostly is the flip side of that story right. that you know that they that they don't even bother looking. Somebody just oh, no, puts looked. it up there. They, they passed it from person to person, and I tried to explain. And I had my neighbor with me, and she came over, and and it was the the, the ladies in Oak Creek do a good job. Right, right. So give them some credit because right. they did eventually let me vote. Was but, it frustrating uh, for you? I mean, I mean, obviously, it's and it was a little frustrating for me. Yeah, but. Yeah. It, you know, it goes. There's a lot. There's a lot of things about having stage four cancer that are frustrating. So uh, you yeah. know, you just kind of go with the flow. Uh, so, how, how, I'm just curious. How long is it? How, how long has it been since your initial diagnosis? Um, it's it's six years, but now I'm at the point of oh. um, they, right. I, it was given two years, but there's a new drug out that's given me a little bit of hope for a little bit longer. Best, best of luck. I can Mary. keep calling you for a little while yet. Appreciate it. But thank and anytime you go right on. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Um, huh. she's got the right attitude. That that's the attitude that you have to have with. Um, that's the attitude that you have to have with dealing for that. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Peter in Montello. Peter. Good morning. Morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Okay. Is it unreasonable to expect people to have like a current valid ID before they are able to vote? Uh. We require a ballot ID to get food. Oh, so you work like at a food bank or something, huh? I, I run a food bank, yes. Okay. And uh, what they have to do, a lot of times they're from out of state and stuff temporarily for the summer or whatever, uh, they have to bring a ballot piece of mail mailed to them in Marquette County at their home address, even though their driver's license or ID does not show that same address. Right. Right. Yeah, which because it just it makes sense because you're trying to make sure who that person is and that they live where they claim to live. I guess I guess I just don't find that to be unreasonable. And you know, people don't feel unreasonable either. We don't have any argument with anybody. So I don't know what the heck the other side thinks that showing your ID is wrong. Right. It's yeah. not. It's just not. You have to show their ID to get food. Well, right. Now, and, and you should be able to have to show your ID before. As far as I'm concerned, voter ID is very, very, it's good. I like it. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I- exactly. I mean, think, I mean, I, and I'm looking at these stories. Like I say, the Associated Press went out. They, they found they found the unicorns. They, they found the lady who lost her driver's license at some point in time before the election and decided not to get it replaced and decided to, to show up, okay, without the, the driver's license. Well, okay, if I lost my driver's license, that would be step number one. It would be I'm going down to the DMV and I'm, I'm getting a new one. But all right, they, they don't do that. So she shows up without that, doesn't have any other acceptable form of ID. All right, it's unfortunate. Then you cast the provisional ballot. The 30-year-old Navy guy who's been living here for a couple years but doesn't have any Wisconsin ID. All right, I'm sorry, pal. I mean, you know, get get the ID. Um, are you disenfranchised? No. You didn't do minimal things in order to do this. And I, mean, I remember doing the election shows. We didn't hear stories about people calling up and complaining that they were being, you know, turned away from the polls. I mean, bottom line is, might there be a couple unicorns that are out there? But yeah, th- yes, there might be. There will always be those folks, whether it's voting or something else. There's always going to be the occasional person that shows up without what they need to, you know, be able to get the services. But that doesn't mean that the system is wrong oh, this headline voter id proved insurmountable for many in wisconsin no it wasn't insurmountable it was that you just didn't do the basic things you needed to do to get it done lisa in wapan lisa you're on 620 wtmj good morning good morning i just feel we had that law put into effect years ago so i'm confused at why people are so upset you, you, yes, there, there was a ton of notice, <laughs> wasn't there? A, you know, it, it's not like anybody didn't know that this was going to happen. No, and I also think that they're hoping that it would have changed right. what the election outcome was. Yeah, and that's just not the case. No, no, that, right, that, right, that, that again. This is that that wishful thinking. Okay, it, and again, this number that's thrown around is, in my opinion, a completely bogus number. That there are three hundred thousand people that don't have IDs. Right? That doesn't mean that there's three hundred thousand people who can't get the IDs without at least a little with with a minimal sort of effort. And it certainly doesn't mean that three hundred thousand people chose not to vote. Uh, 1026, 1026, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, the late great Arnold Palmer changed the landscape of golf here in Wisconsin, literally. Find out how exactly in the All-American Window and Door We Love Wisconsin Tour section at WTMJ.com. Okay, again, I I was off for a couple days, and I've come back to one story after another that just has my blood pressure going through the roof because of the way it's reported. Here is the story. Where did this appear? Oh, this was the Journal Sentinel story. After outcry, Governor Scott Walker vows to keep protections for Wisconsin patients with pre-existing conditions. That was uh, that, of course, was preceded by a story. Governor Scott Walker would consider dropping Fed pre-existing condition coverage rules for Wisconsin. All right. This is a classic example of what you hear and what you see and what passes for journalism nowadays about stories that are accurate but not true. The big thing that is that, that drives up health care costs and the big issue now in health care reform is pre-existing conditions. What do you do with the person who's lost their job and has cancer um, for whom coverage is unaffordable? Well, the problem is if insurance is going to work, as we've talked about many times, you need a pool of healthy people paying in 
um, to cover the costs of the people who have, again, the pre-existing condition, the ones that are taking more from the system than, than the healthy people. And the problem they have with Obamacare is because you can't charge more or deny for pre-existing conditions, you have people who can literally wait till they get sick, then they can sign up, and there's not enough healthy people that are paying in. So this is the balancing act, and I'll let people who are smarter than me decide how you work this all out. But we in Wisconsin, before Obamacare, did a really good job of dealing with people with pre-existing conditions. We had this program where you had this high-risk pool that was set up as a general rule, it was certainly offered you more choices than Obamacare did, and it worked pretty well. All right, so one of the things that the Republicans are doing is they are considering saying we would allow states to ask for waivers to the federal Obamacare pre-existing condition rules and let them set up their own sort of plans. In Wisconsin, we did this before Obamacare, and in my opinion, we did it better than Obamacare. So what Walker says is, hey, yeah, I'd consider getting a waiver. I, I think we'd look at you know going back to our old system, which I think worked better. And that gets these heavy-breathing topics and stories in the Journal Sentinel. There was never any question that Wisconsin would offer some form of pre-existing condition coverage, but because it makes for a cheap political shot, you get it. <laughs> It's 1036, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. After about a year and a half into the tenure of David Stearns uh, as Brewer's general manager, what parts of his rebuilding plan have worked and what haven't? Greg Matzik dives in this evening on Sports Central 607. Actually, I think, you know, you can argue that so far things are are working pretty well. Um, Last year, I think the Brewer's while having a disappointing season, overperformed expectations. Uh, this year, the last two years, the, the team had essentially played itself out of contention by the end of April, and that's just the reality. Um, now they're a game over 500. You know, you're pushing, you know, mid-May. And again, they're, you know, are, are they going to win the World Series? Probably not. Do they have deficiencies? Yeah. But at the same time, they're playing fun baseball. They're playing interesting baseball. They are a competitive team, and um, I think it's tough to – You can nitpick, but it's tough to argue that they're not on at least some sort of a positive trajectory. Okay, we've talked about this in a different perspective with the, they, they call it school lunch shaming, and I've discussed this before, this idea that you can have like deadbeat parents who don't pay attention to their kids' school lunch accounts and then don't put the money in and the kids, the parents get notices saying the kids, you know, it's deficient, it's deficient. And then what happens is that at some point in time, the school says, hey, we're not a collection agency, so they shut off the free hot lunches. And then there's this huge outrage, oh, the kids feel bad because they get a cheese sandwich, to which my response is, all right, well, if mom and dad are doing what they're supposed to be doing, and we're not talking about the parents that can't afford it. We're talking about the parents for whom it's just not an issue. I, I think that's how you wake up mom and dad. Okay, the kid comes home and says, I had to have a cheese sandwich because there's no money in my lunch account. Well, you know, in the vast majority of the cases, the next day there's money in the lunch account. All right, this is a related story, but it is somewhat different. Hondo, who is producing the show today, did you ever go to a public library when you were a kid? You, you said, yes, yes, I did as well. Did you have a library card? You had a library card. Okay. Um, if you didn't take your, okay, so you borrow, you, you have the library card, you borrow books. 
you don't take the books back on time, what happens? Hondo says you get a fine. Yeah, you're hitting on all cylinders this morning. Okay, and if you don't pay your fines for a certain period of time, what happens to your library card? He says they take it away. You are four for four. All right, that's how that's how the libraries operate. You know, you, you get the library card. The libraries, of course, in general, financed by the taxpayers in an area. You are supposed to bring the books back in a timely fashion. If you don't bring the books back in a timely fashion, you 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 know you lose your borrowing privileges, right? All right. Heavy breathing story in the New York Times. Headline: Libraries are fining children who can't afford to be without books. Library fines are the first serious penalties that most children run into outside of the home. And for generations, they have been education and vexation. And then it's the story about this 10-year-old who borrows a book and then loses the, the book. And so um, he, gets, he gets fined by the library um, a two-cent-a-day fine. Um, he just ignores this problem, so the fine climbs to a dollar eighty. His mother, raising the boys on her own, lived paycheck to paycheck. She says, "I was never going to be able to find that that money. I didn't. I didn't have the money to pay the fine." And so, you know, the story is: well, what happens is they suspend the kids' library access. And then it goes on and on, and it's one story after another about how you have all these people who, especially kids, who take out books, they don't bring them back, and then they find that after they've racked up 15 or 20 or $25 in late fees, what happens is they can't continue to check out books until they pay the fees. Uh, the story says a recent tally found that library cards in New York City were blocked from more than 225,000 young people in the city. This means that around one in five city children with library cards cannot use them. And then, of course, you have you know the president of the New York Public Library saying this is terrible. The social cost has been you know too steep. We shouldn't be taking library cards away from or suspending the privileges of people who don't pay their fines and don't bring the books back. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I love public libraries. I, I do. I, I think one of the greatest gifts that you can give children, and I thank my parents every day, is my parents gave me the gift of, of reading. I started reading. I was encouraged to read. I started reading young, and I, I think it's made me a smarter person. It's made me a better person. It has enhanced and in, you know my, my life. But having said that, at the same time, there are responsibilities. And just like I don't think schools should be obligated to give free lunches to people day after day after day without mom and dad paying for it, I don't think it is unreasonable to say when you get a library card and you take books out, you have a responsibility to to bring those books back on time, whether it's for the kid or whether it's for the mom that checks out those books. Because when you're not bringing those books back, when you're keeping them, you are depriving other people of having them. So now there's this huge controversy. You are denying kids, particularly poor kids, access to public libraries by imposing fines 
for people who don't bring back the books and then suspending their library privileges when the fines get too big. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Life text line. Guess my my experience, my comment on this is welcome, I mean welcome to the real world. I think this is first of all, I don't think libraries have any other choice. You take out stuff, you don't bring it back. They have to provide, you know, they have to fine you for doing that, and if you don't pay the fines, you have to lose the privileges. That's number 1. You know, they just need to do that to operate. Number 2, I mean welcome to the real world. And I, I think yeah, it's unfortunate if some kid gets their library card suspended because they've got overdue books or fines. But is it really unreasonable to do that? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I think not. And, and I think rather than people complaining and whining about it, what you need to do is recognize that this. First of all, it's what you have to do to be fair to everybody. Secondly. It's a life lesson. And third, maybe it's an effort to try to, you know, encourage parents and kids to be responsible. Is it unreasonable to pull library cards and to fine kids for not bringing books back on time or DVDs or whatever they're checking out? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. Forty-seven. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Our text line just exploded. What are the libraries supposed to do? Just give away all the books? There wouldn't be any left. Um, Mary Angela, Mary Angelou, held people. Would say hold people uh, accountable. Um, yes, 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 yes. I mean, see, that's that's the whole idea behind this. I mean, that this whole notion that, gee, well, we, we we don't we want to encourage kids to read. I want to encourage kids to read too. But the truth is there needs to be certain consequences. And if you have kids that, that take back library book that take out library books or DVDs or whatever they take out nowadays and don't return them in a timely fashion, first of all, there needs to be some sort of penalty or nobody is ever going to bring back those library books. Second, it's a way of teaching people to be accountable. It's a way of holding people accountable. And when did that be a, become a bad thing? Only in 2017. Now, here's another story. Only in 2017. And I'm kind of curious as to your reaction. Like I was saying earlier, um, I, I was up in Door County for a couple of days. And while there's a lot of stuff that's still closed, there was a lot of stuff that's open. And up in Door County, they've got all sorts of um, – I have a feeling. My, my, here's my general sense. And I like Door County. I do. I like it a lot. But it, it's, a, it's sort of an artist haven and – you know, we were talking to all sorts of different people, and my sense was that kind of like all the hippies from the 60s and 70s who are still around, they have now settled up in Door County. And, you know, you've got all these interesting, like, craft shops and coffee shops and pie stores and, you know, artist galleries and things like that and pottery things. And it's 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 very, very cool, and I understand why people like to do it, but it's – I think it's a certain type of person that, that, that does this. And we went to a bunch of really interesting cafes and stuff, and it was a lot of fun. But one of the things that I was noticing when we were up there is, and, and you've probably seen this as well, is that nobody talks to each other anymore. I was sitting, um, we were sitting in this restaurant in um, 
dot, 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 dot. I'm drawing a blank on the, on the name of Sister Bay. And, and we, we had a table looking out over the sidewalk. And there were various people that would walk by. And it became kind of a parlor game for us because there, like, there are these three young girls, teenage girls, walking by. They're not talking to each other. They're all, they've all got their phones out, and they're all looking at their phones as they're walking down the street. We're in a, in a coffee shop slash, you know, one of these kind of like hip and trendy, like frou-frou kind of breakfast places. And you, you look around, and nobody's talking to each other. Everybody's on, everybody's on their cell phones, or everybody's sitting there, you know, with, with the Wi-Fi. And that's the big thing. You go into the place, and in addition to the prices of everything, there's the big sign, yes, we have Wi-Fi, this is, this is the password. And, and I'm not talking about just the business guy or the person that's there sitting at the table by themselves. I'm talking about, you know, couples or, you know, three or four friends or whatever. They're there and everybody's on the Wi-Fi and everybody's on the, the cell phones. And we were actually kind of discussing this. So there's a story in the New York Times the other day. Let me just share the first part of it with you. Hot Black Coffee. At Hot Black Coffee, a cafe in downtown Toronto, you can get walnut butter squares, lemon poppy seed muffins, biscotti, and, of course, coffee. But one thing you can't get there, Wi-Fi. The owner of the store, um, and it opened last year, made the said, okay, we're not going to offer Wi-Fi because what we want to do is we want to encourage customers to gasp, heavy sigh, actually talk to one another instead of burying their faces in laptops. He says it's about creating a social vibe. We're a vehicle for human interaction. Otherwise, it's just a commodity. And then the story goes on to talk about how at many coffee outlets, workers set up makeshift offices and rely on Wi-Fi, which is a given if not a right. Um, this is this new trend that's developing where these stores say, hey, this what we want is we want people talking to each other. We don't want people, again, obsessed with their cell phones. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I would be the last person to criticize you know, people for using cell phones. It's great. We are now connected. You can check your email anytime you know you want. You know, if there's an emergency situation, you can pick up, you can make that call. But this idea of the permanent connectivity, have we gone too far with that? And is this business perhaps onto something? That this idea that all right, you know, when, when you go out to eat and you're interacting with people, you know, maybe maybe you should just put the cell phone down. If you're sitting, and how many times have you been there? Maybe it happens to you. You're at a table with two or three other people, and you're not talking to those people. Everybody's got their cell phone out, and I'm not talking about just, you know, trying to, you know, search the Internet to settle an argument about, you know, who starred in a particular TV show in 1972. But, but this whole idea of... You know, are we too connected? And is this a successful business model? The one where, hey, we want people to inter- to actually interact. 414-799-1620. Because I will tell you, and maybe this is just a personal pet peeve, if I'm sitting out there having coffee with somebody or a drink or whatever, there's nothing more annoying than somebody you know checking their phone constantly. Now, I'm not talking about you want to make sure there's some message from the babysitter to see if the – not some message to see if the kids are in trouble. But you know what I'm talking about. They're just, here, we're going to sit down and we're going to hang out on the damn phone. Molly in Oconomowoc. Molly, you're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning. 
Hi, good morning. Hi. I have a real pet peeve with this as well. Um, yesterday I was traveling back from Detroit and just making the observation that while I was waiting for my flight, 95% of people heads down looking at their phone. Nobody right. people watches anymore. Nobody carries on a conversation. But uh, my husband just recently got an Apple Watch, and he's been um, encouraging me to get one as well. But I feel like that's even worse yep. for me because if it buzzes on my wrist, I'm going to look. Yeah, right. And I, I feel like I'm already too connected with my phone, and I'm making a concentrated effort to put my phone down more. Right, right exactly, because not everything is an emergency. <laughs> no. No, and I think we're in a society now where the expectation is when you send an email or a text, you are expecting a response within five or ten minutes, and if you don't hear back, then something must be wrong. Well, well, exactly. People are used to that instantaneous thing. When I first started practicing law back in the day, I mean, then it was, I mean, you'd have couriers that would deliver the, the letters, and then it became fax machines, and now it's this email, and you're expected, you know, it doesn't matter, you're right, whether it's Saturday or Sunday, you're expected to be constantly plugged in, and, you know, Maybe we're just a little bit too. Maybe we're just a little bit too plugged in. I agree. Yeah. No. Thanks. For, I mean, again, that and look, and I, I, I'm not against this technology, but it is. It was this interesting phenomena because you know we were talking about that when we we're Door County, and I'm just, I'm watching all these people sit in these like again these sort of hip and trendy places, but nobody's talking to each other. You know, or, or, or everybody's walking down the street. And it, was, it really struck me because it was these three teenage girls, and they're all walking down the street, and their their heads are all buried in their cell phones. They're not talking to each other, I don't think, unless they're texting each other. But it's kind of like, you know, you know, really? 414-799-1620. Donna in New Berlin. Donna, you're on 620. Yes. Hi, Donna. Yes. Uh, we were at a Milwaukee restaurant, and at the beginning of the meal, we all voluntarily put our cell phones into a fishbowl and right. locked it for the whole meal. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, I have friends who do that same game. The game will be everybody puts their cell phone, they put it on vibrate, they put it in the middle of the table, and the rule is whoever reaches for theirs first has to pick up the tab. <laughs> but we got a reward from the restaurant afterwards. Right. Free drink and or Oh, really? Like yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't know about you, Donna, but it's... I mean, I'll sit in the restaurants and I'll hear the people that are having the conversations. And I mean, and, and most of these times, they're conversations that could wait. I mean, it's not like this is an emergency. Oh my gosh, you know, Aunt Sally's on her deathbed. It's this mindless kind of senseless prattle. And of course, yeah. they're, they're talking really, really loud because there's the ambient noise. And you want to just say, hey, knock this off. <laughs> It, it was really nice because the four of us had a really good conversation. You talk, My daughter you talk is to each on other. Her cell phone. <laughs> yeah, they, right. Exactly. No, thanks. You, you, you actually talked to each other. It's eleven oh nine. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. All right, I am about to. Do something that the the radio the, the book. If you were trying to describe a book for for talk host show hosts like Radio One Hundred and One, I'm about ready to violate that because I'm about ready to offer a position that I think is nuanced. Because <laughs> sometimes sometimes you know you're, you're just it doesn't matter. You like Trump, you're better to just go out and like like pound on the table. I love Trump, or you hate Trump, and Lord knows there's enough of those people. You just just hate it. Nobody can do anything right or wrong. Sometimes issues are difficult, 
and they require a degree of nuance. Uh, let, let me tee this up. I hate, 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 as a resident of Milwaukee County, having to pay a $30 wheel tax for the privilege of housing my car in Milwaukee County. The fact that I live in Milwaukee County and that I pay the outrageous property taxes that you pay if you live in Milwaukee County, to me is penalty enough. And even though $30 isn't going to make a difference in my life one way or the other, th- this idea that when my latest car came out with, uh, when my when the car registration was due, that in addition to having to pay the state fee, there was this $30 fee for living in Milwaukee County, I found that aggravating. If I lived in the city of Milwaukee and I had to pay whatever the city of Milwaukee's fee is on top of it, I would be even more frustrated. And I understand that the way this is being sold is, well, you know, we, we need to take this money and we need to use it to repair the roads and underwrite the bus system, to which it's like, hey, you know, really? You know, first of all, they've been charging this in the city of Milwaukee for a while now. The roads are still crummy. I'd be curious to see where this wheel tax is going in Milwaukee. And you know it's going to be the same way, you know, in in, in Milwaukee County in general, that, you know, you wonder where the money's going to get spent. And secondly, rather than sticking it to the car owners in Milwaukee County, you know, maybe maybe there's all sorts of other ways that you could come up with the dough if you need to support the bus system, like not tearing up roads to build a high-speed bus line or a semi-high-speed bus line that nobody's going to ride anyways. So I hate the wheel tax. I think the $30 wheel tax is a reason to vote against every member of the Milwaukee County Board that voted for that wheel tax. I think the $30 wheel tax and the fact that County Executive Chris Abley wanted to push through another $30 wheel tax, I think that is a tremendous campaign issue. It is a reason I would love to see somebody qualified run against Chris Abley and argue, okay, this is the guy that wants to just charge you for, you know, keeping your car in Milwaukee County. I think it is a great campaign issue. I also think it was great that at least a couple members of the county board who have some sense of fiscal responsibility um, decided that, okay, we're going to put this wheel tax up to a referendum, the second $30 increase, and it, it went down just overwhelmingly. So, I mean, an increased wheel tax right now I think is pretty much dead on arrival. And I understand, and again, so I hate this $30 wheel tax, right? That said... I mean, it was something that our elected officials decided to to do. All right, well, here's the deal. As part of the legislative package that is, is moving through the Assembly right now, there there is a provision which would terminate Milwaukee County's $30 vehicle registration fee as soon as July 1st. And it says the county could retain or regain the wheel tax only if approved by voters in a referendum. Uh, there's no scheduled uh, elections till the end of the year, so you couldn't have a referendum in 2018 at, at the earliest. So here you have the, this state plan, and again, it's part of 
overall changes in you know gas taxes and things like that that would eliminate Milwaukee County's wheel tax, but interestingly, not eliminate the wheel tax for other counties. All right, so here's where the nuance comes in. I hate the wheel tax. I, I do. Have I made that clear? I hate the wheel tax. I, I think it's it, it's just, I think it's a way of gouging taxpayers. I think it is regressive. It hits poor people more significantly than others. It encourages lawlessness because it's going to encourage people just not to register their cars. And God knows we have enough of that problem already in Milwaukee County. So I think it's a really bad idea. I also think moving forward, If the legislature wanted to say any future wheel taxes to be imposed by any county, as this again, if it's part of an overall transportation package thing, would have to be approved by referendum. I could get behind that. I could. But here's the nuance. This is a matter of local control. And there's something about the state legislature telling Milwaukee County, that it has to do away with an existing wheel tax that has been in place, I think that's overreach. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I hate this tax. I would, I would support any local politician who wanted to move for a repeal of this tax, and I would be delighted to give them airtime and to argue for that. But is this a matter that the state legislature should be telling us that this tax that is in place, that our elected officials have voted on, not new taxes, but this tax that is currently in place, should it have to go away? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, what, what do you think? Even if you hate the wheel tax, should people in Madison be telling the county that this existing wheel tax has to disappear? 414-799-1620. And as much as it pains me to say this, my answer is no. I think it's a matter of local control. We in Milwaukee County get the government we pay for, unfortunately. And in this particular case, that government has stuck us with a $30 wheel tax. I don't think the state should be telling us that we have to make it go away. It's 1116. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. Uh, Jeff Wagner. It's 1118, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Now, I understand this is nuance. I hate the, I hate this gas tax that you have in Milwaukee County, this $30 wheel tax that they have in Milwaukee County. But I have issues with the state legislature now saying this tax that has been in place, we are going to eliminate it. Now, if you want to say moving forward, you know, any, ref, any, any wheel tax that is put in place by any community has to be approved by the voters, I'm, I'm fine with that. Okay, this has been on the books. It is something that is part of the revenue stream for, in this case, Milwaukee County. I guess I just don't think the state should be messing with this. Give me a politician who wants to rescind it, and I'll support them. Deb in Wauwatosa. Deb, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I'm on the same page with you that I I don't like it. I yeah. live in Tosa. I have more than one vehicle. I now have to pay it twice yep. for a vehicle that I actually only drive six months out of the year. Yep. Um, you know, but I, and and I also agree with you that it should be the politician that we elect that should make this go away. Right. And 
not really from Madison. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, this is a matter of local control. It is an ill-considered tax that I think, you know, ha- has all sorts of problems with it. But but right now, the, Mad- the state has really hamstrung local communities as to how they, they can raise revenue because we've got limits on, you know, property tax increases and things like that. And I appreciate where the Republican politicians are coming from, and I'm sympathetic, but – but to me, it is it is local control, and it's a matter. You know, when this went to a referendum on the added thirty bucks thing, okay, people spoke out loudly, mm-hmm. and maybe right. you know, maybe people will speak out loudly when some of the folks who voted for this come up for reelection. I I don't know, but I just don't like the legislature in Madison telling us we can't do it, even though I hate the tax. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. All right. No, thanks Thank for calling. No, and again, I, I understand that's that's the sort of nuanced view uh, of this we well you hate the tax you're always you know complaining about the tax this is going to make it go away well yeah it's going to make it go away but it's not necessarily the right way to do it um scott writes i don't live in milwaukee county but i look at the same way you do the gop talks about local control and local decision making so why do the lawmakers american uh, in, in madison feel they have the right to tell only milwaukee county that you cannot have a wheel tax um, even though it went through all the proper legislative and administrative processes. Yeah, see, that's the other thing about this. It, Unlike, for example, residency rules, where they, they applied a statewide rule, this one only singles out Milwaukee County's wheel tax. Now, you see, I think you can make an argument that we're going to, in order to pay for the roads, we're going to change the rules and we're going to develop a statewide strategy. And we want it to be consistent between municipality and municipality, county to county. You can make an argument for that. But then if you're going to eliminate wheel taxes, you, you can't just, it seems to me, just pick on Milwaukee counties, even though, did I mention I hate this? <laughs> Mark in Walker's Point. Mark, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. I'm in the same boat with you, Jeff. Um, what I don't understand is that with them rescinding this, um, it puts the transit system where we're raising money for in jeopardy. Um, I read right. that possible, um, and this is huge, uh, especially with uh, uh, Summerfest coming up. They're right. thinking about bring, cutting back the Summerfest lines. That's a huge yeah. draw for our city in the summer. This is ridiculous, and I, yeah. I'm not sure whose idea this was, but this needs to be yeah. looked at again. Now, now, in fairness, Mark, I mean, this is... That's the ably response. It's it's kind of like when when you talk about like cutting money from the federal park service, and the first thing they do is they say, okay, we're going to shut down the, the Washington Monument. That was kind of the reaction. Okay, if you take this away, we're going to shut down the Summerfest bus lines, which are actually the things that that make money. <laughs> yeah. But but so but but I I agree with the basic point. It's like okay, this is you know they've done the budgets based on this type of stuff and. Yep. It, um, even though it's a bad, I think it's a bad tax. You can't just single it out. No, thank, no thanks for calling that. You. And that again, and I'm trying to be. I understand it, it's easier, and it's perhaps some people might say, "Oh, you're being inconsistent," you know, because I'm not banging on. I'm, I've been the one banging on the table. I was fighting that thirty dollar added increase. I argued against this wheel tax in the first place. And again, if there's politicians, if there's people that want to run against members of the county board using their vote for the wheel tax in the first place as an issue, I, I'm all in. I, I mean, I'm I'm with you and I will be supportive of that. But again, we have my you've got a clown car act that is a large number of members of the Milwaukee County Board. All right. That's 
But that's the government that we have have selected. And I do think that this is a matter of local control, especially since it's already been worked into the budget. It's 1124. This is Jeff Wagner. A lot of good stuff coming up on the program, including downtown strip club becoming closer to reality and a really provocative question from a doctor. Should people who use health care more often pay more? Stick around. It's 1124. It's 1126. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Good to be back. A couple days vacation. I enjoyed it, but it's very, very good to be back. And uh, uh, certainly a lot of stuff going on. A couple people saying, you know, are you going to talk about Donald Trump firing uh, James Comey? Yes, we spent a lot of time on that this morning. But that's one of the great things about the podcast you can check out the Wagner Show podcast. Just go to WTMJ.com. Check out our WTMJ mobile app. And actually, I know a lot of people do that because we see the numbers. And I spent the first segment or two on the program discussing exactly that. WTMJ's classic free ride is now officially out of our garage and ready to head into yours. You can now register to win the 1968 Valenti Oldsmobile 442 convertible. I saw it the other day by heading to WTMJ.com, sponsored by Prescient Financial Solutions with Northwestern Mutual. And don't forget to text the word RIDE to 414-799-1620 to check out the photo gallery of what might be your next car. So once again, if you text RIDE, you want to see the car, text RIDE to 414-799-1620. Check out the photo gallery of your next car. All right. I, I rail a lot about some of the things that go on with social media and the fact that like people can't get away with anything anymore, and you know it's just that. And it's amazing to me that some people haven't learned that lesson. That nowadays everybody has cell phones, and and nothing really is private, nothing is secret anymore. But but every once in a while, you see these examples on social media where it helps make the right thing happen. Uh, I I love this story. This happened over the weekend. Apparently, there's there's five described as young adults who go out to this bar in Greenfield, the Brass Tap Tavern, and they skip out. They run up a tab of about 106 bucks, and then they dine and dash. They skip out on it. Now, I mean, of course, when, when you do something like this, depending on how the business operates, first of all, you, you screw over the business, but you also mess over, like, the waiter or the waitress who, or whoever because, you see, a lot of times, you know, they're held responsible for it. it it's just a bad thing. Plus, I mean, it's like stealing. I mean, they might think they're clever, but okay, they've ripped off. It's a it's a ripoff. You know, you've gone in. It's like you've stolen $106 from a local business. So they run away. Well, actually, rather than just going quietly into the good night, the folks at the brass tap, tap and they've got security cameras all over. So what they do is they go to Facebook, and they start posting this. Um, and the, the note from the owner is, to the guys who ran out on the $110 tab at a table tonight we will be coming for you and we will post video and pictures and the authorities have been notified you can come back in and pay or prepare to be prosecuted so they put that out there nobody comes in then they say since we didn't receive payment now it's time for the social media community help out if you can they offer a reward and then they put up the pictures of these creeps who were there who decided to like dine and dash well all right after they do that the deadbeats um Come in. Apparently, four of the five deadbeats come in. They um, they pay their share. 
still unclear as to whether or not uh, they left a tip or whatever. But this is one of these great examples of social media shaming that's out there. You have people that do really, really crummy things to a local business. They're on camera. And here, we're just going to put that out there. We'll see, let the world see the five deadbeats who decided to rip off the Brass Tavern. Rip off not wearing masks and guns and holding it up, but rip off indicating, hey, you know, we're going to order food, then we're going to dine and dash. This is an example of social media at its finest. It's 11.35, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I, I've actually been thinking a lot about the, the whole health care thing and, and how you, you deal with this. For most people, most people really don't care right now about Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act or whatever because most people in this country get their insurance, their health insurance, through their employer, or they get their health insurance like through the government, if you're a government employee, or you get it through like Medicare. Right? So the actual number of people who are covered under the Affordable Care Act are a, a comparatively small number of people. But, but what happens under the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, drives a lot of other stuff that affect the, the rest of us. And there, there's all these issues because what's happened is um, insurers – no longer participate in Obamacare. They're dropping out day after day because they can't make money on this. And the problem is, as we have talked about before, the whole idea behind insurance is you need a pool of healthy people who are paying in premiums to protect themselves in case they ever get sick. Um, and the, the number of healthy people paying in premiums needs to greatly exceed the number of really sick people who are drawing out of it. Because, again, the, the idea of insurance isn't, hey, let me sign up when I get sick. It's here, I want to protect myself in case I get sick. And the problem, of course, with Obamacare and what they're seeing is Obamacare says it doesn't matter if you're already sick. Um, you can come on to the program and we will cover you. So, you know, you might have to wait a few months, but we will cover you. So you have a lot of people who are saying, hey, I'm just going to take my chances. I'm not going to pay the, the premiums. I'm healthy. I'll take the risk. There's a small, a relatively small penalty if you decide you don't want to participate. So the, the, the people that are on the program tend to be sicker. There's not enough healthy people that are paying in, and, and that's why there's no money to be made, and it's why there's a problem. So you've got to deal with the preexisting condition thing. You've got to deal with all these issues how do you get people to participate and and what is fair and what is not fair there was a really interesting opinion piece written in of all places the new york times a few days ago by by this doctor um here let me read you a portion of it now that the obamacare replacement bill has passed the house and is moving to the more centrist senate the real debate begins what is the true purpose of health insurance and what is our government's goal in ensuring we have it I learn from my patients every day about the benefits, limitations, and contradictions of their health insurance. One charming 60-year-old with severe seasonal allergies insists on seeing me every few weeks this time of the year, even though I tell her she doesn't need to. Her antihistamines and nasal spray treatment rarely change, but she worries that her allergies could be hiding an infection, so I investigate her sinuses, her throat, her lungs, her ears. I reassure her, and her insurer, which insurance, which she buys through Obamacare, covers the bill. 
This is what the doctor's writing. If she was responsible for more than just a small copayment for these visits, I know I would see her more. I would see her less often. But his point is because she gets it for almost nothing. You know, she comes in over and over and over again, even though she doesn't need to it. Now, he writes, we pride ourselves on being a compassionate society and insurance companies use this to manipulate us into sharing costs of other people's excessive health care. Meanwhile, 5% of Americans generate more than 50% of health care expenses. Why shouldn't a patient who continues to see me unnecessarily pay more? The government's job is to maintain public health and safety. It should ensure that insurance plans include mandatory benefits like emergency, epidemic, vaccine, and addiction coverage, um, etc., etc. But Obamacare went well beyond these essentials by mandating an overstuffed fixed-price meal filled with benefits like maternity and mental health coverage that drove smaller insurers with fewer options out of the market. Speaking of compassion, how about some for the 20-something-year-old construction worker who can't pay or can't afford to pay his rent because his premiums help subsidize overusers like my allergy sufferer? Why shouldn't a patient who is risk-adverse pay more for coverage that she might never need while that construction worker be allowed to choose a cheaper insurance plan that might only cover the essentials? Interesting. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This, to me, is one of the fundamental flaws of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, that, that it, it lumps everybody into this same category and mandates all these different things for everybody. Why shouldn't right, the 20-year-old worker who doesn't, who, who's never going to need, for example, the, the maternity care, why should he have to pay for that as part of his policy? Why should the 24-year-old essentially have to underwrite low co-pays that allows, like I say, this guy's 60-year-old patient who is an over-treater who comes in you know, every couple weeks to have her sinuses looked at, even though the doctor says you really don't need this? I mean, when, when we look at insurance, shouldn't, shouldn't we allow people more flexibility and freedom to pick what it is that they want and that they need. You set up some certain essentials. But, all right, if you're never going to need birth control coverage, all right, you're, okay, you're, you're a 45-year-old couple um, and, you know, you've had three kids and you're, you're not going to have any more babies, all right? You're not going to have any more babies. Maybe mom has gone through menopause. Maybe, you know, after the, the second kid, something, you know, the tube's tied, whatever. Maybe dad has had the vasectomy. You're never going to need that coverage. Why, why should you have to pay for it? Why should you have to pay for the over-treaters that are out there? Why shouldn't we have more choices as to what you can get, what sort of coverage you have, and if you're the person who wants to go to the doctor every three or four weeks to have them look and check out your allergies. All right, that, that, even though the doctor says you don't need this, there's nothing wrong with you, that, that's great, but shouldn't you pay more for those multiple visits as opposed to the person who's never going to go see the doctor? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Wouldn't this be a much more... To provide more choices instead of this just huge mandate 
one size fits all and you have to cover all this stuff for everybody, wouldn't it be a lot fairer? And yes, the truth is, that means that some people are probably going to pay more for the added coverages than other people would have. But is there really anything wrong with that? 414-799-1620 is the number we discuss next. It's 1143 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Eleven forty six. Jeff Wagner, six twenty to WTMJ. Today is your chance to outlaw that annoyance, pet peeve, or bad habit that's been bothering you for so long. It's Cafidi and Bill Stats. There ought to be a law, and they'll take your calls beginning at two oh seven here on WTMJ. See, I just think it's time for Adult Swim. It's it's time. If we're going to figure out health care, we have to be grown-ups about it. And we, we have to get away from the, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world that are screaming at this and, and the hysterical stuff. The Jimmy Kimmel saying, well, my son born with a heart condition, you know, wouldn't have had coverage, wouldn't have had coverage. Well, okay, he, he's covered by his employer. Yes, he would have had coverage. That was just fundamentally, you know, not true. He's not under the, the Obamacare situation to begin with. And most people are still going to be able to get coverage because they're still going to continue, at least for the moment, to get their uh, insurance through their employers. But there is this this idea of, of how do people pay for things. And consistent with the whole idea of insurance, if you use more of a service, shouldn't you pay more for that service? And again, this doctor's example was, you know, he's got a 60-year-old woman who's got allergies and, you know, she... She doesn't need to come in and see him, but she does every month this time of the year because she's afraid that, okay, she's got these allergies, but she's afraid that it might be something else. So she comes in. She does it. She has an an almost non-existent copay if – and so she's draining the system. You know, she is what they call an over-treater. Shouldn't – if she wants to go in and see the doctor once every few weeks, God bless her. But but shouldn't she have to pay more than the 24-year-old guy who's healthy? It's just – it's kind of working that out. And shouldn't you be able to choose, you know, the elements that you want of your health care plan, understanding, I mean, the best example I give is, is automobile insurance. Okay, collision insurance, you know, what happens if, not liability, but what happens if your car is damaged, all right? Your car is damaged. There's all sorts of different policies that you can have. You can buy the policy that says you've got a $250 deductible. Um, meaning that you know you pay the first two hundred and fifty bucks of the damage, and then on, after that, you know the insurance company kicks in five hundred dollar deductible, thousand dollar deductible. Um, but, but you know those different situations, you know, and and then you 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 pay more accordingly. Okay, Sue in Waukesha. Sue, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Hi, hi Sue. Um, I have a question. I sure. need a little bit more clarification. Sure. Um, what about people who have uh, pre-existing, such as right. Alzheimer's or epilepsy or cancer, diabetes? They, sure. Yeah, and they end up, you know, getting sick, and they have, they, you know, aren't able to work continuously, mm-hmm. and they have a gap in their insurance coverage. So I think a lot of people that I'm speaking with at work or my family. We don't quite understand that. And if you're not working and you end up having a gap in your insurance coverage, mm-hmm. you know, how do you make that up? How are you how are you supposed to pay more, you know, because you lose the coverage or what have you? So well, I'll, I'll I think up. Okay, sure. No, and I'll, I'll explain to you how I mean, I'll explain to you how like we we address that in Wisconsin before Obamacare. 
Now, now, right now, under Obamacare, you you are correct. And, and matter of fact, you don't even have to have. Let's even let's even throw out the the gap in coverage that you're talking about because you're you're using the example that I always give about why you have to be aware of pre-existing conditions. You you know you've worked. You know, for 30 years, you've paid into your insurance. You, you've never, you know, had a claim. All of a sudden, Lord forbid, you, you lose your job. And then three months later, you know, you're, you know, you've got that gap. And then you get this diagnosis of stage four cancer and you're going to run up a million dollars in expenses. Right. And that is, of course, the extreme situation. But how do you arrange for that? Well, right now, under Obamacare, what happens is it's not just the people who, it's not just the people who have that gap in coverage. You can essentially make a decision that you're going to go without insurance. And then when you get that catastrophic diagnosis, you can you can come right on to the program and you can pay the same as the healthy people who've been insured for all all their life. You know, there might be a little bit of a waiting period, but you're going to get you're going to get coverage. And that's one of the things that's causing the system to crater. So how how do you how do you deal with the, the case that you're talking about, that extreme case? Well, what you do, and that's what the state of Wisconsin used to do beforehand, before Obamacare, is they used to have these high-risk pools that, that were there. And the high-risk pools, the, the cost was subsidized by the state to make them affordable, admittedly more expensive than if you were 35 years old and perfectly healthy and never had a claim. But it, but the insurance was available. And the, the way it was set up and the pricing was such that there, there was some degree of flexibility. You still had your choice of different insurers. So, I mean, I, I do think that the government has to figure out a way to subsidize these high-risk pools. I, I get it. But you also, I, I think, have to allow for people to have individual choices, um, again, as to what they're going to need and what they're not going to need. Because I think in addition to the pre-existing illness thing that you're talking about, Sue, one of the other problems that you have is the, these insurers are required to offer all these different things that drive up the costs but for a lot of people, they, they don't use it, they don't need it, whatever. And so as a result, what you have happening is this whole thing, it's, again, it's starting, it's starting to crater. And where we're going, if we don't do something, is we're going to national health insurance. Where, where the government, where, you know, na- we're actually going to, I think, to socialized medicine. That's the, it starts with single payer, where the government controls everything, and then it's going to ultimately be, again, you know, nationalized health care, the socialized medicine. And I, I understand that that's sort of what we have with Medicare, but I don't think, and look, I'm, I'm closer to Medicare than the other, okay? You know, I, I'm closer to Medicare than, than the other. It's not like I'm 30 years old. But if I was 30 years old and my prospect was, gee, I might lose all the different choices I'm going to have over the next 20 or 5 or 30 years, that would scare the you-know-what out of me.